Well, tonight we're looking at Old Testament redemption lingo. Um, the, um, the function of what we're doing tonight, uh, some of you may have homes with crawl spaces in them, and if you ever go into those dark, murky pits, uh, you sometimes find that, uh, depending on the height above the ground, you run into a place where there's kind of a square... Um, support made of concrete blocks and goes up so high and then the floor joists go across that. Uh, hopefully meet some other of those uh, concrete block supports and so on. Well, that's what we're trying to do tonight. Uh, this is kind of behind the scenes of what Dr. Thomas has been teaching. We're kind of going into the crawl space and, and looking at some of the supports from the Old Testament that, that really support what he's already been teaching. Uh, so that's the way to look at it. And we're looking at some words and so on. And uh, focusing on words, I think, can sometimes be tedious because, uh, well, you just can't go through every use or, you know, I'll have you just sleep before uh, it's time. I, so uh, what we're doing is kind of a dipstick method. We'll, we'll take some samples uh, of the use of these words and so on, but I'm not going to take you through uh, every usage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, that just that just uh, will will uh, drag us out. So uh, we'll have to we're, we're going to have to summarize and, uh, as I say, give some samples. So I just want to take you through uh, some of the the terminology in the Old Testament, mainly verbs that are used in Old Testament. Redemption, uh, redemptive language. Uh, and and uh, first, number one, is the P word, pada. So let's look at the P word. Uh, the verb is used 60 times in the Old Testament with about nine derivatives. Uh, so total about 69 times. It has to do with the payment of a required sum for the transfer of ownership, often translated in English versions by the terms redeem or ransom. So that's pada. Let me give you a specific example. It's there. The text is uh, Exodus 13, 11 to 16. Uh, this speaks of um, when Israel comes into the land of Canaan, they're supposed to go through certain procedures based on what had happened in Egypt when Yahweh delivered them there. Uh, you know, in, when Yahweh assaulted Egypt, he struck down the firstborn of persons all the way from Pharaoh's son on down, and the firstborn of animals. The firstborn, therefore, even in Israel, belong especially to Yahweh, chapter 13, verse 15. So, the firstborn males of clean animals, since they belong to Yahweh, are to be sacrificed to Yahweh. However, you have the firstborn of a donkey... Uh, that's a uh, technically unclean animal, non-sacrificial animal. It's to be redeemed at the cost of a lamb. You look there at verse 13. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem. You shall padah with a lamb. Or if you will not padah it, you shall break its neck. Well, which makes it pretty useless uh, besides being dead. Uh, so... Uh, a, a donkey, you, uh, firstborn of a donkey, you redeem it. How do you redeem it? With the sacrifice of a lamb. Price is paid, right? Uh, and uh, you also do the same for the firstborn of humans. Uh, uh, 
every firstborn, the last of verse 13, but every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. How will you redeem your firstborn of your sons? Well, uh, in Numbers 18, uh, it seems to indicate uh, how that is. It's a payment of a, a ransom price of five shekels. So here, as, as John Currid says, padah refers to a substitutionary payment, either for a donkey, if you want to keep it, or for your son. Uh, it's a monetary payment then. Uh, so padah refers to a substitutionary payment that buys back livestock or a son from being given over to death. That's padah, that's one sample. Sometimes these little incidental samples in a kind of what you might think is a kind of an out-of-the-way law or regulation often provide you maybe with the best picture of what the word uh, really connotes. Now, there's an additional use of padah, and I've given you four texts there from Deuteronomy. You could add to that others, like 2 Samuel 7, verse 23, and uh, Micah 6, verse 4. Uh, but a number of uses, and I've just selected Deuteronomy 7, 8 here, uh, a number of uses in Deuteronomy refer to the way Yahweh has uh, padad Israel, redeemed Israel, and the reference is to the redemption out of slavery in Egypt. Look at seven, verse, Deuteronomy 7, verse 8. Uh, Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slaves, from the grip of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Uh, so this refers to the whole Exodus event. Now the stress seems to be, there seems to be three matters going on here in this use of padah. Number one is the condition from which you've been redeemed. Redemption from something. In this case, the house of slaves. And then there's the redemption to something. You're, you, the, it brings you into liberty then. That's the result of it. And there's the power needed to bring it about. He did it with a mighty hand. So those three uh, elements seem to circle around here. Now you notice that direct reference to a payment is not explicit here as it was in chapter 13, but it refers to the whole liberation from Egypt. Okay, that's padah. Uh, let's go secondly to the G word, the G word, ga'al, and if that's the verb, ga'al, uh, the uh, participle, or some would just say noun, is go'el. Uh, so those terms. Uh, this verb and its derivatives, the whole kit and caboodle, occurs 118 times in the Old Testament, and it refers to the work of a relative, or you might say kinsman, who redeems or purchases his relation from difficulty or danger. Now let's take a specific uh, sample uh, here of uh, Leviticus 25, because in Leviticus 25, this uh, verb ga'al is used at least uh, 10 times. So we'll uh, look at that uh, momentarily. Look, please, at, uh, and I apologize for the, you know, look at these verses and then we jump to another, but there's no way getting around that when you're dealing with a, kind of a word uh, study. Uh, look at verses 25 to 27, please. Leviticus 25, verses 25 to 27. And let's go through that. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, then 
and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the year since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. And so on. Now, this is a situation where an Israelite gets into dire straits financially, apparently. So he sells part of his property, his land, in order to stay solvent. And uh, if that's the case, then his nearest relative, his Goel, (laughs) uh, one who can redeem, uh, should buy back what has been sold. But maybe the fellow has no near relative uh, who can do that. It may be that he himself recovers sufficient prosperity uh, as time goes on that he himself can buy back that land. And so he can do that. And then in verse 27, it kind of gives you uh, the way that would be calculated. Uh, That is, if he bought it back himself, the price that he would pay would depend uh, on the number of the uh, crop years between the time of his repurchase and the time of the year of Jubilee. The Jubilee year would be the 50th year, and in that year, everything returns back to the original owner. At least it was supposed to. Uh, so let's say uh, George here. I know that's not a Hebrew name, but let's let's say he let's say he sells part of his property. Let's say in the twentieth year, uh, you know, uh, and so on. Uh, there are still thirty years to to jubilee. Uh, let's say after he sells that, he eventually becomes prosperous enough himself and recovers that in the 30th year, 10 years later, he can buy that property back, redeem it. Well, then he calculates from that date, the 30th year, that it would be to the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, it'd be 20 more years. Those would be the crop years that that uh, the fellow he sold it to would have normally had. So uh, you, you calculate the payment proportionately on the number of crop years he would pay for 20 years yet, and he would buy it back. Uh, <clears throat> that's in terms of property. Now, if you look down at verses uh, 47 to 54, and I'm not going to read that, uh, but verses 47 to 54, you have another example. An Israelite may sell himself to labor for a non-Israelite. Here's a stranger or a sojourner, a non-Israelite who's well-heeled enough and so on. And here's this Israelite who seems to be in desperate straits. And so he sells himself to work for a non-Israelite. It's probably a form of debt slavery that he's, he's uh, involved in here. So <clears throat> if so, verses 48 and 49 uh, suggests there are a whole raft of relatives, potential goels, potential redeemers who could buy this fellow out of his, redeem him from this bondage. Uh, but uh, if not, if perchance he himself began to prosper again, he might redeem himself. And again, the price paid would depend on the number of work years uh, that uh, uh, his, his uh, owner, you might say, or master, uh, would, would still be available between the time of his paying the price and the time of ju- the year of Jubilee when, when he would automatically, allegedly, go free. But what I want you to see here in both these instances in Levitica, Leviticus 25, it can be a very complicated kind of stuff. Uh, but please note that there 
is a redemption price. There is an amount required to purchase freedom. That seems to be involved in Gaal. All right? Now, let's take up another context. This is a narrative one in Ruth chapter 3, verses 9 to 13. Uh, I know the context is bigger than that. But just in those verses, Ruth 3, 9 to 13, you have the uh, Gaal root occurring seven times. And you remember how apparently Boaz was slow on the draw, perhaps, and Naomi thought that uh, she didn't assume that uh, just because Yahweh was sovereign that she should just kind of wilt in her armchair and let go and let God. So she said to Ruth, now you gussy yourself up, take a shower and put some perfume on, etc., and go down to the threshing floor. How did she know Boaz would be guarding his barley heap at that time? Well, she knew uh, and and, uh, told Ruth what to do and so on. It was very risky sort of a thing. Uh, But uh, in that culture, you know, you just didn't uh, kind of hard to communicate. Uh, uh, Ruth, Ruth uh, couldn't uh, put a post-it note on uh, Boaz Thermos, you know, and say, we need to talk. Uh, my number is da-da-da, uh, love Ruth. You just didn't do that. Uh, and yet this, this was risky stuff here. So um, here's Ruth. Uh, uh, never happened, verse 8, never happened to Boaz before. Uh, wakes up or, or is disturbed in the night, and he is just scared spitless practically. Uh, there's a woman at his feet. Now, robber you can handle, but a woman come at the threshing floor? No, that didn't happen before. So uh, he asked who she, she said, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant, spread your wings, or could be singular, spread your wing over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now the wing is probably the edge of the garment. Uh, It's a a metaphor for marriage, really, and uh, she wants to come under Boaz's protection in in marriage and so on. You are a goel. Uh, Now, that's, uh, by the way, this this doesn't pertain to anything particularly, but it's interesting that you have that uh, that metaphor or picture there, isn't it? Um, uh, Spread your wing over your servant or your maidservant. Uh, marriage for a woman. I know this is not PC, all right? Um, and this goes against all the strut your stuff, uh, stuff. But marriage for a woman ought to be a kind of protection. It ought to be a sort of shelter for her. Uh, I think that says something to some of us husbands that maybe we sometimes forget. Um, uh, spread your wing over your maidservant. Uh, there's a protectiveness that marriage ought to give to our wives and a, a sheltering effect. But back to the text here. Uh, not that we ever really left it. Uh, but uh, Boaz is, is gratified. I mean, uh, he said, in essence, you know, if you just wanted marriage, you could have gotten all the, any of the young bucks around here, the guys that go up and down Maine in Bethlehem and their Corvettes and that sort of thing. Uh, and you didn't do that. You, you came to me. And he is, he is very moved and impressed. And he says in verse 13 that he's most willing to do this, uh, but there's a pecking order. There's a goel, there's a relative that's closer 
in relation than he is. And this guy gets first dibs, as we say. Uh, So he's got to work that out. Now, just looking at the context in Ruth 3, I think you can pull some inferences out. In this context in Ruth 3, the Goel was a relative, verse 12, that's clearly the case, who protected the person, verse 9, and her rights, which protection in this case would involve marriage and ongoing provision and rescue from destitution. So I would infer that inductively in the context of Ruth 3, you could say a redeemer is a near relative who in our destitution takes us under his protection and provides for us. That's a pretty good picture, maybe. Um, That's just trying to pull out of the narrative itself. Now, as this works out, you get into Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, and Naomi seemed to know that Boaz would not let this thing sleep. He was going to deal with it and uh, go to court. And so he does that. You go to the uh, town gate and so on there in Bethlehem, and, and he summons this guy uh, and tells him to sit down. Actually, uh, you know, uh, verse four, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. We don't know how to, uh, to translate that word friend, really. The Hebrew is poloni almoni. Uh, it's a lovely phrase, isn't it? Uh, it might be something like Joe Schmo or something, or, uh, but, but it's hard to know how to translate it. Uh, poloni almoni. That's beautiful. Uh, friend might be it, but it's hard to know. Anyhow, the guy knew who he was talking to. And, and uh, he, he uh, puts, puts, it, puts the case to him uh, of whether he wants to buy, perhaps redeem, this land that Naomi is selling. And that sounds good to this fellow because, uh, according to Robert Hubbard, uh, he could perform respected family duty, he could enhance his reputation, he could gain land that on Naomi's death, she couldn't live forever, uh, would remain with him. But then in verse 5, this guy says, yeah, I'm for that. And then in verse 5, Boaz throws a curve to him. He says, now there's just one other little thing here. Uh, When you agree to do this, you also agree to take Ruth... Machlon's widow uh, as your wife and, and uh, try to raise up seed to the name of the dead. Well, uh, that's a different story. He would have to support two women, uh, pay for the field or the land, feed another mouth if there were a child by Ruth, and then that child would inherit the land uh, rather than his own, uh, any of his own uh, uh, family perhaps. So, Uh, He said he could not or he would not redeem. So Boaz takes this on. And you see all that he says there in verses 9 and 10. uh, Your witnesses that I have bought uh, from the hand of Naomi, all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Machlon. Also Ruth and Moabite, the widow of Machlon, I bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place and so on. So there is uh, quite a picture of Boaz as a goel. What a commitment he is willing to make. Uh, maybe he won't, it won't be profitable materially for him, but he is willing to lay out the resources uh, to do this. So I think it highlights here the stubborn willingness of the Redeemer to commit substantial resources in order to relieve the needy. That also reminds you of someone else. 
uh, Boaz uh, would do that. Now, so the G word, Gaal, or, and, and Goel, uh, then in, in the G word, the stress is more on the person of the Redeemer. Uh, now, having said that, uh, it doesn't mean that the price isn't there. Uh, clearly, there's always an outlay. There's a price to pay for the freedom of the destitute one. But more of the stress is on the fact that this Redeemer is a kinsman uh, who is willing to undertake this duty. Now, uh, you also have, um, interestingly enough, some analogy to this in New Testament texts that uh, Jesus is our kinsman, isn't he? Not only from the fact that he became flesh and blood and shared in that as we do, uh, but there's that uh, beautiful text in Hebrews 2.11 where it says, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Uh, and the uh, Romans 8.29, of course, that, that the good that God has in mind, everything works together for good to those who love God. What is that good? That good is to be shaped to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So he is our kinsman as well. So that's the G word. Okay, let's go to a third one, the K word. Uh, this is... Uh, uh, Kaper, as it u- is the usual pattern, and then there's uh, that's the the verb form. It's used over a hundred times, often translated in your ESV anyway as make atonement. And then <clears throat> there's a related noun, uh, kofer, is used thirteen times, usually of a ransom payment. Now I'm just going to give you that example there. I n- Put it in your notes, Exodus 30, verses 12 and following. You have a use of kofair or ransom payment where this is a situation. And you always, I know you, you, you probably say, well, but why did it have to be that way? I don't know. It just was. Um, but but uh, uh, every Israelite who was numbered, the male Israelite who would be numbered in what's probably a military census was to pay half a shekel as a ransom for his life, it says, so that no plague of God's wrath would break out among them. Now you notice that combination. Pay a ransom for his life so that no plague of God's wrath would break out among them. A payment that shields from or turns away wrath. That's the conceptual element of What's the word? Propitiation. Okay. Uh, so you just have a kind of a sample of it here. Now for most of our K word, I want to go please to Leviticus chapter uh, 16 if we could. And you might want to turn there in your Bibles if you have them. <coughs> Leviticus 16 because... Uh, Kepare is used uh, 16 times in this chapter. This is the account of the Day of Atonement in Israel. Uh, came once a year and so on, and this is the account of it. We're not going to look at all of it, but we're going to look at part of it uh, if we can. Uh, two notes about this uh, making atonement 
uh, as as uh, compare is usually uh, translated. Uh, in this text, the, the one element uh, says that making atonement deals with the defilement of sin. Verses 16 to 19. Let's just look at those verses. Leviticus 16, verse 16 to 19. Now, this is this after Aaron. Aaron had to make atonement for his own sins and so on, and uh, then. Uh, He uh, would kill the goat, one of the goats, that was a sin offering for the people. And uh, he would take its blood into the most holy place and dribble its blood around. And then verse 16 takes up. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. By that he means the most holy place. Because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place. All right, let's pick up verse 18 then. Then he shall go out to the altar. means the altar of burnt offering, I think. That That is before Yahweh and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. Now, uh, whether that's altar of burnt offering or the altar of incense and so on, it, it is not really critical here, but, but uh, what, I, what I want you to notice, notice this strange language, make atonement for. Make atonement for what or for whom? Make atonement for worship stuff, for, for the worship space, for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting, for the altar. <laughs> what do you, why do you do that? Well, notice it says what makes it necessary. Well, it's the uncleanness says, notice the plural, of the children of Israel. Now, that's an interesting idea. Um, What's it look, how's it viewing sin here? It's viewing sin as pollution. And because of what? The people of Israel do, and because of who they are, it infects and defiles and taints even the worship place. That's not a good analogy here, but but uh, I'll use it anyway. Uh, let's say you let's say you have a generally happy marriage. You would not want to be married to anyone else, etc. And you're, you're generally pleased. All right. Um, Your marriage, though, happy as it may be, is not as intimate and is not as caring and is not as open. It is not as kind as it ought to be because you are self-centered. You are sometimes cold. You are temperamental. You are indifferent. You are inattentive and you are moody. So it doesn't always come up to what it ought to be. Why? Because you're the way you are. Now, that sort of thing. Why does the why does the worship place and the stuff in it have to be atoned for? 
because of what Israel is. And they pollute it. That's an interesting idea. So here's the worship center, and it's as if there's an oozing uncleanness, a creeping defilement, as if there's a sinfulness that rubs off from the people onto the worship stuff. It would be, it would be something like, now this is not a direct analogy, you know, but be roughly going into the first press sanctuary here and seeing one of the custodial staff with a huge um, spray bomb of Lysol disinfectant. And the guy is going around just letting everything have it. You know, what are you, what are you spraying that communion table for? Oh, uh, you don't know. You know, what kind of people come up here? What are you doing spraying the, the choir loft? <laughs> Do you know what kind of folks those singers are? <laughs> uh, well, why, are why are you spraying the Trinity hymnals and, and, and the worship folders? Do you know what sort of folks do that worship? Uh, oh, but why, why the pulpit? Do you know who it is that preaches and prays and leads worship and all of that stuff here? The, 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 the pollution, as it were, the defilement oozes out and infects it all. That seems to be the picture here in uh, Leviticus uh, 16. And so our sin, I'm trying to make a, more of a connection now with our situation. Our sin defiles the creeds we say. The hymns we sing, the prayers we pray, the invisible goop of our sin oozes over our finest acts of worship and spreads a film of iniquity over it all. And it needs to be atoned for. That's the idea here, I think, in the text. Now, it's hard to stop pollution, isn't it? Or defile. I mean, it just goes everywhere. When we were living in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, uh, uh, in our last pastorate, uh, being Mississippi, um, you, you have certain drawbacks from living there. And uh, one day I pulled open the uh, silverware drawer in the, in the kitchen, and there was a true Mississippi roach. Uh, uh, with rigor mortis, of course, uh, uh, lying there in the silverware drawer. Now, the good thing was, it was, it was in, in, you know, how those, those uh, plastic things are divided and so on. It was in the section with the table knives. So, so we only had to wash the table knives. <laughs> no, you know better. Everything! went into that dishwasher. The whole thing was polluted. I remember a time when um, once when we had a faculty get together uh, at the seminary, uh, and uh, I'll tell you ahead that this was not Rosemary Thomas that did this. Um, 
So just to relieve you. Uh, but but uh, we happen to know, and I don't think anybody else knew, but I happen to know because uh, the lady told me, one of the, the faculty wives told us, that uh, they, they had brought a dessert. I don't know, it was one of those, you know, cherry and coconut, you know, that sort of stuff. It, it looked it would, it would have been good. Um, uh, but, but she told us that the cat had gotten into a corner of it, gotten up on the cabinet, gotten into a corner of it. Well, I made sure that I knew which one was her dessert. And I didn't touch that thing that night. I wasn't going to do anything. That, when I looked at that, all I saw was cat. That's not just like it's just a corner. The whole thing, the whole thing is affected. Now, you have this kind of pervasive, that's the word, isn't it? Pollution. That seems to be why there's a need to atone for even the parts of the worship center. Now, when this comes home to you, and when you sense this, I I think this comes up in, in, uh, if we think through some of... uh, uh, it, ought to, it ought to infect our thinking more than it does. I don't know if you use the uh, Valley of Vision. It's that collection of Puritan prayers uh, that uh, Banner of Truth puts out and so on. But some of their, the Puritan prayers in there uh, pick up on this kind of an attitude. Here are some of the things that those prayers say. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. What's the theology behind that? Man, if you can be brought to tears, surely it must be genuine. Well, it may be, but it's still polluted with what I am. How much I need... An atoner. Okay, so uh, that's the, the, the atonement deals with the defilement of sin. Now, there's a second element there, and making atonement deals with the removal of sin, verses 20 to 22. Uh, now, this is when <clears throat> there were these two goats. One was, was uh, killed and sacrificed, and its blood was applied and so on. And this deals with the live goat. The, the goat that is uh, left alive. And uh, here you have a picture of the removal of sin. Now, uh, as, you, as you look at verses 20 to 22, you notice the process with this live goat. Uh, first of all, it's the high priest, Aaron, lays both his hands on the head of the live goat. Actually, that word lay is a little bit too tame. It's just to press down upon He presses down his hands on the head of the goat. And he confesses over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. Now, there's there's the procedure with this live goat. Uh, Now... pressing the hands down upon the goat was a symbol of identification, among other things. You have it in Leviticus 1.4, when an individual Israelite comes with a sacrifice. And what's the first thing he does? He puts his hand hand on the head of his, his sacrificial animal, as if he's identifying 
that with him with the worshiper and so on. But then he not only presses uh, Aaron not only presses his hands down on it, but but also uh, uh, he confesses Israel's sins uh, as he does that. Now, what's the significance then of that press and confess pattern? Well, you have it in the next line, don't you? That he, um, in verse 21, and he shall put them, that is their rebellions and their sins, he shall put them on the head of the goat. So this pressing and then confessing the sins as if he is transferring the, the uh, transgressions and sins onto the head of the goat. And the goat has them then. So it's almost as if there's pressing down, there's identification, there's confession, there's almost transmission. And then the goat is taken away. And there is the removal of the sin and the guilt. Uh, But that really kind of depicts what we might call imputation. You press, you confess, and you put Uh, That's what's behind Isaiah 53, verse 12, incidentally, when it says of the servant of the Lord, but he, emphatic, he carried away the sin of many. He bore the cargo. He bore the load. Now, that's what you have here in verses 21 and 22. This live goat has a cargo. And as my dad would say when he was preaching on this text or referring to it, you never saw that goat again uh, because you went, uh, was taken away into the wilderness. Now, uh, <clears throat> Pop would say, uh, who knows what happened to the goat? And it might have starved to death, possibly. Probably was eaten by a wild beast. But the goat never came back and it had the sins of the people on it and they never came back into the camp isn't that good news now you might say well why does Yahweh piddle with pictures like this I mean, it seems like a child's reader doesn't it here in these verses well look at it you know, see the hands on the goat See the sins go on to the goat. See the goat led away. See the goat never comes back. Why does Yahweh mess with giving you pictures like that? Because he wants to grab your imagination. Because the Bible never just tries to express truth to you. It tries to impress truth upon you. And it does that sometimes not just through your intellect, but also wants to bring into play your imagination. Not just express, but impress. It wants you to be able to say with Horatius Bonar's hymn, I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He takes them all and frees us from the accursed load. You might be able to say in the light of Leviticus 16 here, Jesus is the blessed goat of God in our behalf. Now, that leads us to the last word. So let's uh, take that up. Um, That is, what are we to say to these things? What should our reaction be uh, as you look at at these matters. And I think one of them is, uh, should be ecstasy. Um, 
I, I don't know how it comes across to you, and, and, and please understand, we have to, there are just certain restrictions we have to have in public worship, right? We can't have everybody just doing their own thing, all right? I know that. So that when we say the creed, for instance, we've got to keep together, right? I mean, there's a certain cadence, and so on. you've got to keep together. Sometimes, sometimes, don't you feel after that creed is over, like saying, yes, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes, doesn't it? Don't you just want to put something in bold type? If you really understand what the goat did on the Day of Atonement and what Jesus finally and decisively did and the guilt never comes back. Seems to me we ought to be willing to be excited over that. And then secondly, I think the other reaction we ought to have is fear. Um, you might remember First Peter 1, 17 to 19. That's where um, Peter, Peter is writing, says, if, if you call upon... Uh, if you call upon the one who judges impartially as father, and he judges impartially according to each one's work, pass the time of your sojourning in fear, knowing as you do that it was not with perishable stuff, with silver or with gold, that you were ransomed out of your empty way of life passed down from your ancestors, but with costly blood, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, even the blood of Christ. Now, what's he? He's trying to get them past the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now, why should you do that? Well, when you call upon God as Father, you're calling upon the one who judges impartially according to every man's work. That ought to engender a little bit of reverence. But then there's another realm, because when he goes on in verse 18, he says, knowing as you do, that's a little bit paraphrastic, but it it's, picks up the idea. Knowing as you do, what do you know? Well, that you were not ransomed with perishable stuff, but with costly blood. And that too ought to nourish your fear. <laughs> what kind of fear and so on? Let me, let me I think we have uh, time, let me... Let me uh, tell you something that you may have already heard of, uh, many people have, but uh, hopefully it will give the right attitude that, that we should have. You may have heard of Paul Harvey's account, you know, his rest of the story stuff, of the non-choir practice at Westside Baptist Church in Beatrice, Nebraska on March 1st, 1950. Okay. Uh, well, anyway, it went like this. Uh, Mrs. Paul was the choir director and, uh, at Westside Baptist in Beatrice, and uh, her daughter, Marilyn, was the church pianist, and uh, they'd never been late for choir practice. Uh, they were both in the habit of getting there 15 minutes early, 
And it's Wednesday evening, March 1st, 1950. It's 7 o'clock. Choir practice begins at 7.30. And Mrs. Paul hollered up to her daughter, Marilyn, that it was time to get ready to go to choir practice. No response. So Mrs. Paul went ahead with some other things that she was doing. And then it became 7.15, and she hollered up. And still no response. She, she realized her daughter was asleep upstairs. So she went and roused her up. There was no time to do anything to, but just kind of tidy up and, and get going. But for the first time in years, the director and the pianist are going to be late for choir practice. So, now what, what uh, happened was that there were 18 members in the West Side Baptist Church Choir at that time, and all of them were late for choir practice, uh, and they all had reasonable excuses. Uh, LaDona Vandegrift, for instance, was a high school sophomore, and she was, uh, had a conundrum of a geometry problem she was trying to sort through, and she wanted, uh, she always came early, but this evening she was detained by this baffling geometry problem, and then Royina Estes and her sister Sadie were uh, ready to leave their house on time, but their car wouldn't start, so they called LaDona, who had the geometry problem uh, to pick them up so they were all three going to be late. Herb Kift was at home. Uh, he would have been on time, uh, early in fact, but he had this important letter he was to write and he kept putting it off and time got away from him and Joyce Black would not have been early, but she would have been on time. She was just so cold that evening that she waited until the last possible in, 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 uh, moment to leave her home, so she was late and Harvey All, well you know Harvey, um, he would have been on time but his wife was out of town, uh, and he had two boys, and they'd been invited out for dinner at someone's house, and they had a good conversation going, and time got away, so Harvey was going to be late. And Lucille Jones and Dorothy Wood were high school uh, girls, and they lived next door to each other, but Lucille Jones was listening to a half-hour radio program that began at 7 o'clock, and she just had to see how it turned out until 7.30, so they would be late, and so on. And Pastor Klempel and his wife were always on time for choir practice, but not on March 1st. Pastor Klempel's wristwatch, his pride and joy of accuracy, was somehow unaccountably five minutes slow that night. Excuses, excuses, Harvey said. There were 18 of them in all. Never before nor since had each choir member of the Westside Baptist Church been late for choir practice on the same evening. March 1st, 1950. No one showed up. 7.30 p.m. was the time when a natural gas leak surfacing in the basement of the Westside Baptist Church was ignited by the furnace. The church blew up and was demolished. The old furnace of the Westside Baptist Church was directly below the choir loft. And Paul Harvey's line, the empty choir loft. Uh, you think about that and say, it almost looks like a divine conspiracy going on there to bring that about. But if you're one of those people and you learn the rest of the story a few minutes later, 
What kind of a reaction would you have? I think goosebumps would come out on your backbone, and I think your knees would get really weak, and you'd pretty probably want to sit down. It would kind of bring a responsive fear, in one sense. I think that's what Peter is after here. If you really understand the price that was paid for you, it ought to make you feel kind of wobbly. And it ought to make you tremble just a bit. And that's a right reaction. So, let's close our time in prayer. Our God, we... We can search our own day or we can search the ancient Near East. and We will never find a God who cares about dealing with the guilt of his people. We thank you that you have given us the blood to make atonement. And we thank you that you have given us Jesus' blood to make lasting atonement for our souls. We pray that you would work the right attitude in us. We pray that you would work uh, that attitude of, of both relief and reverence, of both triumph and trembling, that we would have both a proper exuberance and also a proper fear. In Jesus' name, amen.